Welcome to podcast number 27 of How to Rocket Your Private Investigations Business. I'm your host, John A. Hoda. Today's date is May 18th, 2021, and our guest this week is Jeff Stein. Jeff has over 30 years' experience in the private investigations, security, and security consulting, CCTV, and loss prevention fields. He's a president and owner of EL. PS Private Detective Agency, and also of PA Digital Surveillance Systems. He received his Bachelor of Arts degree in criminal justice from Westchester University. He's also received advanced training in interviewing and interrogation techniques and attended the New Jersey State Police Academy Municipal Class located in Seagirt, New Jersey. He's also a board-certified criminal defense investigator by the Criminal Defense Investigation Training Council and a board-accredited investigator. His expertise while specializing in criminal defense and homicide investigations runs the gamut of all the private investigation lines of inquiry. In January of 18, he was inducted as a member of the VIDOC Society, and in in February of that same year, he's licensed by the Texas Department of Public Safety as a continuing education instructor for both private investigations and security. He has probably handled over 3,000 interviews during the course of his career, And we get into some very in-depth discussion today about serious criminal defense cases that he worked on. Welcome to my new podcast, How to Rocket Your PI Business, and it features successful private investigators who offer insights into their careers and advice to those just starting out or to those who are struggling. You will learn from the best. And of course, we cannot finish a show without asking them to share their favorite detective stories and maybe a few sage marketing tips. As a working investigator, coach, and writer, I hope to bring you inspiration, information, and entertainment in the areas that interest me most. Gather around my campfire as I invite you to listen in. This episode is brought to you by my recently published books, private investigators, how to launch your private investigation business, how to market your private investigation business, and how to boost your private investigation business. It also appears a three-book set in How to Rocket Your Private Investigation Business, the complete series. All can be found at your favorite online retailers in ebook or soft cover. Did you know that I also coach private investigators how to survive and thrive in business? Visit my website at www.com. The PI Coach, one word, dot com. That is the PI Coach, dot com to learn more. Hi, Jeff. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. I've been looking forward to this interview for quite some time now, and I was very happy when you said yes. So, how's the weather down there in uh, beautiful Westchester, Pennsylvania? It's nice in the 50s. It's a little warmer than it's been lately with all the snow and ice that we've had. So it's been a nice change. Yeah, it's a balmy day for sure. Up here in uh, southwestern Connecticut, as we record this, February 26th, it's a sunny day. Not as warm, but uh, certainly the snow is melting and we're seeing uh, our grass and looking forward to spring coming soon. It can't co- For me, it can't come soon enough. So my listeners and I are very interested, Jeff. Can you tell us how you got started in your career and just walk us through it? Because it's been a long one and a very, and you've done a lot of different things. So don't leave anything out. I will do my best. So I started when I was 18 years old as a store detective for a 
department store that doesn't exist anymore called Hanes. Nothing to do with the underwear brand. It was more like a, a JCPenney's type of department store. And I started catching shoplifters. And while I was going away to uh, college as a criminal justice major. So I've, I've always been in the field in law enforcement security arena profession. I worked my way up through uh, during college and post-college in the retail field as a store detective, a loss prevention manager, regional manager, district manager, and eventually became a director and worked for uh, several different companies during that time. I did go to the police academy and decided that my route was really more in the, in the private sector than the public sector. So I stayed in that arena and being in, in that business. And especially now, I think people see this quite a bit in, in this day and age, but there's always been stores and retailers that come and go. So mergers and acquisitions and chapter 11s and stores opening and stores closing. There's hundreds especially the past two, three years, and COVID has, has shuttered several more. So at one point, I decided I was going to control my own destiny. And let me just back up. While I was working for Fortune 500 companies and was a director, I still did side work and worked for a private investigator on the side part-time. So even when I was in college, I, I worked for a PI who I'm still in touch with today. When I started my company, I was really looking to work with more of the, the retail environment, the mom and pop type stores, small little chains that needed the loss prevention uh, investigative experience that they didn't have access to, like the big department stores. And I did that. But as I was doing that, my niche and company evolved to a lot more because you, you're going to go where the business is, where you're successful uh, in some of your niches. So I continued to evolve and we started doing some security work. So we have a security division doing investigations. We, of course, did and still do domestic cases and the workers' comp stuff and personal injury and, and so forth. And I found that my niche was criminal defense. And I've been doing that now for 12 years, give or take, where I specialize in homicide cases. And at any given time, I have between five and 10 cases that I'm working on. And some of them are, many of them are the post-conviction relief acts, but uh, some are, you know, in the trial stages as well. So that was kind of a, a quick view from, from the beginning to where I am now. And it's gone over three decades, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Correct. Yeah. So uh, something about keeping the lights on and staying in the black for 30 some years, it takes some effort as, as it relates to the business. So in the formation of your business and making sure that you were having enough work coming in, what were some of the things that you did and where were some of the places that you were able to attract customers and clients? Well, in the beginning, I think like anybody else, we did anything and everything we could, you know, and and I would do things for at a lot lower of a rate than I would now, for sure. But you get offered uh, an opportunity to do something at a much reduced rate, and it pays the bills and puts puts food on the table. So did a little bit of everything. I find that word of mouth is probably the best advertising. I and mean, we do all kinds of marketing and a website and so forth. But returning clients, returning customers, attorneys... I get letters and phone calls every day, literally every day, if not every other day, from inmates in prison. You know, my name's been out there. Two of my cases were on TV last this past year. So 
that generated a lot of new business as well. Okay. Why don't we take a dive into them if you can? Do you, you want to talk about them a little bit? Because I'm interested and in why you said it, why don't we hear it? And then maybe we can get back into more of the, uh, the general business formation stuff later. So tell me about them. Okay. The cases that were on TV? Yeah, please. Okay. So the first one was on CNN Death Row Stories. I don't know if you've ever watched any of them, but CNN on, on their, their second channel, they have a series called Death Row Stories. And my case aired, I believe it was in May of 2020. It was called The Hit That Wasn't. And my client is still in prison. Uh, the case has been in the PCRA stage now for over a year, which is very rare. But COVID happened <laughs> and that just paused everything. This this was a really long PCRA hearing. And for the folks that don't know, PCRA is the Post-Conviction Relief Act. And basically that's when there's either the defendant is able to prove that there was either ineffectiveness of counsel at the time of their original trial or there's new evidence that wasn't available at the time of the trial. So this case was Dante Thomas is my client. I can share that. It's it's on TV. <laughs> and he was convicted, found guilty of killing somebody through my investigation. He was not the killer. I have I have numerous witnesses. I'm able to place him somewhere else. I was able to identify who the actual shooter was. There's a couple things that I can't talk about because the, the PCRA hearing is still still in play. But it's one of those things where the original investigation wasn't complete. There was witnesses that weren't called that should have been called. There was some fraud and corruption among law enforcement that took place. And it's interesting. And I like to use this analogy, um, especially in criminal defense cases. When you are the defendant, the defense is going against the prosecution. It's almost like a football game and it's, it's us against them. Right. And everybody wants, you know, both sides want to win. And the unfortunate thing I believe in our criminal justice system now, and this plays right into this particular case is that you become your adversaries and instead of working together, you know, that the district attorney's office will put blinders on and they don't want to hear the truth. They just don't, <laughs> you know, and here's a guy who's in prison for murder, not only in prison, he's on death row, and, and he would have been executed if when this governor was elected, he put a stay of execution. So there's been no execution since he's been governor, thankfully, in, in this particular case. But why not work together? And why not say, well, what new evidence do you have? You know, what, who do you think did it? Why do you think they did it? And, and instead of trying to fight over it in court, why not sit down and, and get together and say, look, this is everything that we have. And they can say, oh, wow, <laughs> you know, instead of fighting it. But hopefully we'll bring him home soon, maybe one day this year. But like I said, I, I know who the, the person is. And we're just hoping that we can prove with the evidence and information that we unfolded that it, it gets heard by the judge the right way. I, I will say this, though. I'm thankful for your podcast. And I know um, there's a lot of people who are trying to you know, help educate the general population. And one of the problems is that not only the general public, but the judges and the district attorneys, a lot of them don't understand what it's like on the streets, especially when you're talking about inner cities like Philadelphia and Chicago and LA, where there's a code, 
and they just don't rat on each other and they don't come forward and say, oh, yeah, I saw Johnny shoot this person and shoot that person. That's not how they do it. <laughs> they keep to themselves. They don't want to be in trouble. They don't want somebody coming looking for them. And one of the individuals that I found, we always knew that when Dante was home, one person came to his house. And when I interviewed this witness, I learned that two people came to his house. And the first person who came had blood on a shirt and he had a gun. And that's how I learned his street name and who he was. And the client never even shared that at first because that's who it was. He he knew he knew who it was, but he didn't want to rat him out. Know, there, there's a code, ride high or die. They're just scared because they still have family out there, you know, and they're worried that there's going to be re retaliation and so forth. But the sad thing is this this witness came forward. She gave me an affidavit. I, I've took two, two different affidavits from her. And then it came time for the PCRA hearing and she's testifying and she told the judge what she saw, who she saw, who came to the door. And, you know, she went and got Dante. He was in his bedroom. He came to the door in boxers and had to put clothes on and, and stuff. And she says, why didn't you ever come forward? She goes, well, number one, nobody asked me, you know, nobody, no right. legal counsel went to her. The police never went to her. And she goes, number two, like, I'm scared. And the judge looks at her and she goes, well, what are you scared of? Like, are, I'm sitting in the seats and I'm like, really? And then the judge looked at her and says, I don't believe you. I think you're lying. This girl had nothing. She hasn't seen the defendant since he's gone to prison. Like she was staying there because she would have been homeless if she didn't. They allowed her to sleep on a futon in their living room. But the judge just is uneducated on how it works. In fact, she's not even a regular homicide judge. She's normally in the civil division. But because they're so backed up, she's filling in. Unfortunately, she doesn't know what goes on in the streets. So I feel bad, but that's that's what people deal with. And, you know, here's here's the judge already predetermining that this person's lying. And I can tell you, she's not. There's no ends, ifs or buts about it. Everything with evidence we know. But so that's case number one that was on uh, death row stories. Then in December, I believe it was, I think it aired in the beginning of December on the ID channel. And that was called, the title was The Whitmans. And I've been working on that case. In fact, Sue Whitman, the mother, just called me the other day and I need to call her back. Just reminded me. <laughs> this case happened in 1998. And at that time, Zach Whitman was 15 years old and his brother, Gregory Whitman, was 13 years old. And Zach was later found guilty and convicted of killing his brother, Gregory, stabbing him approximately 104 times and partially decapitating him. And he, he was on house arrest for five years. So when he finally went to trial, he was 20 years old and he was tried as an adult and found guilty. Well, he was a juvenile, but he was tried as an adult and was found guilty and was sentenced to life in prison with no parole. And back in, I think it was 2016, the Supreme Court found that that was unconstitutional to sentence any juvenile to life in prison without parole. Long story short, this uh, on, on the idea, and I've worked on this case for about seven years. So th there's been a documentary, there's been a camera crew that entire time. In fact, they started a little before me. And this really was, was to, to on the ID channel to talk about the Whitmans and what they went through, you know, having a, their teenage son murdered. 
and their other teenage son found guilty and responsible for murdering him. And they stand behind him to this day. They don't believe that he did it, nor do I. And what life was like for them and, you know, what the whole process was for juvenile lifers. So it wasn't about whether he was guilty or innocent. I know there, there are still talks and hopes that maybe Netflix or another uh, station will pick it up and do more of a series because this was, this was on for, it was two hours, but I think total airtime was 88 minutes. And a little bit about this, and obviously it was, it was on TV and there's, there's a lot of information on this on the web, but Zach stayed home from school that day and Gregory went to school. Gregory was more the alpha. He was 13 years old. He was very outgoing. He had a lot of friends. He was very uh, sports uh, into, into sports and a- athletics and so forth. Zach, he played, played sports as well, but, you know, he was more of, more of an introvert. You know, he was more quiet, more laid back and so forth. And he was homesick that day. And they estimate that Gregory arrived home sometime between 309 and 311 when he got off the bus. And as soon as he walked in, he was attacked. Zach called 911 at about 317. So there wasn't a lot of time. And when he called, maybe it was 319. I think it was 319. I'm sorry. When he called 911, he was on the phone with them until the paramedics and the police got there. I don't feel that a 15-year-old, and they, by the way, they're, they're a Caucasian Jewish family in York County, Pennsylvania, middle class. They weren't gangbangers. They weren't in the inner city. They were just your your everyday f- family. I don't see how a 15-year-old would be able to do what he did in that time frame. And in that time, this girl, Aaron, had called and spoke to him for about a minute and a half on the phone and testified that during that time, he sounded like he always did. You know, he wasn't out of breath. He wasn't fighting. She didn't hear any noises or anything like that. It was when he hung up, he heard noises downstairs. And that's when he went downstairs and he found the body of his brother and he called 911 immediately. 911, he was found in the back hallway leaning up against the washing machine. And 911 made him lay the body down flat. I understand they were doing their protocols, you know, not knowing what they were dealing with. So they were telling him basically to lay him down because they wanted, you know, maybe, maybe they're going to have him do CPR or whatever. But his head was practically cut off. It was three quarters of the way cut off. And so when he laid him down, he's telling 911, he's dead. He's dead. <laughs> and in my opinion, that's when the transfer of blood got onto his sweatshirt. Of course. And, <laughs> right. And, and they had... hundred and some stab wounds and... Uh, right. Yeah. Okay. The, the, the police came. In fact, the first police officer who arrived on the scene, he came and saw the body and he couldn't handle it and he went back outside. Then their, their chief came and, and he went to go search the, the house and right behind him was another EMT. And he's like, what are you doing? <laughs> you stay right here. Don't move. So the crime scene's already contaminated. You had one police officer searching a two-floor home uh, with a basement. So really, there's three floors. There's the basement, the main level, and the upstairs. They lived on a cul-de-sac. Law enforcement did not surround the house. They were just all, you know, all the ambulance and EMS and whatnot were outside in the front of the property. Nobody was stationed in the back. 
when the chief was in there and, and the EMT, they testified they, they heard the back door slam shut. They claimed that it was the wind. Well, it was an interior door so or an exterior door that opens inside, right? You, you, you push it open. The wind would have blew the door open, not closed. So was there somebody in the house still? I don't know. There was blood on that on that doorknob. The only blood that Zach had on him was on his sweatshirt. None in his hair, none in his face. Very little on his socks, but that's only natural for him to have blood on his socks. I mean, he's walking in in a bloodbath. I mean, it was there was blood everywhere. In fact, those socks should have been soaked in blood, completely soaked, and and there was barely any. They found at midnight using luminol. They found what they claim were footprints, bloody footprints that were coming outside or going outside. They have a hot tub, and at midnight or one o'clock in the morning, they found buried in the backyard, uh, this little pocket knife with some bloody gloves and said that Zach went out there and buried that stuff. So if you have fresh blood on the, on the bottom of your socks, don't you think it would get on the light gray carpeting? There was no sign of it to the naked eye. None, none whatsoever. In fact, guess what happened to all the pictures that the police took of, of all these alleged footprints and whatnot that they saw? They got lost. No, even better yet, not one of them came out. All they were were black pictures of black. But what I learned later, and and this makes sense because they even notated this, that the footprints were more defined towards the, the rear of the house, the back door. And that only makes sense because the one thing that will trigger the luminol is the chemicals from the hot tub. Now, chlorine from a swimming pool won't necessarily or won't trigger luminol, but the different chemicals from the hot tub will. So the parents use the hot tub all the time. Of course, you're going to see marks that come into the house. But but again, no blood on a light gray carpeting, which is just doesn't make sense, doesn't add up. The original trial counsel did a bad job, didn't call any experts, didn't hire a PI at the time, you know, just really thought he was going to win this case because it was there was no evidence. The only evidence they have was Zach was home. He was upstairs in the parents' room. So he was there, and there was that blood that was on his sweatshirt. But even a blood splatter expert said that it doesn't make sense because the way when they presented it in court, the sweatshirt was folded flat. When he's wearing it, it's not flat. So he lost that case. The interesting thing is... Word got out because the documentary crew was was interviewing the district attorney and everybody else and, and different witnesses and friends and family members, uh, myself, of course. And right around that time, I got a, a confidential tip from a, a hotline that was still in place from 20 years ago of a person of interest. And at that same time, the district attorney started to proffer with Zach because he had to, because he had to, he was charged by the way with, with first degree murder. And so they, they had to resentence him because that was law with all juvenile lifers. And so he said to, he said, if you admit that you did this, you'll be eligible for, for parole in January in a few months and you can get paroled and be out of prison. And that was a sure thing. And so the family, they had me stand down on this person of interest at that time 
because he was going through his proffers and understandably so he was going to get out if he made this deal, which he did. And he did get out. They changed it from first degree to third degree and credit for time served. And he got paroled in a few months and, and he was out. How many years did he serve? He was went in. He was under house arrest from 15 to 20. And then he was incarcerated in prison from 20 to, I believe it was 36 years old. So 16, 17 years in prison with another five years of house, house arrest. Lost his, his complete childhood, his teens, everything. Yeah, and what a tough decision. Oh, my God, look at that. He sticks up for his innocence, and he could literally spend the rest of his life in jail. If he takes the deal, he's now admitting in court on a second charge that he was responsible for his brother's death. Do I understand that right? That is correct. Yeah. So, but now there's still the opportunity, isn't there, to, to prove the, um, the alternative suspect? Is this where we're going to go with the rest of the story? There is, and, and that was not on the documentary, or, or that was not on uh, how it ended on the documentary on uh, the ID channel was the, the final final thing you saw was it said Jeff Stein is, is following up uh, independently on, on this investigation. And I was able to go, this, this person, the person of interest, he described a few months, about two months before this murder, he stopped somewhere at a neighbor's where his children were. It wasn't really a neighbor, but he didn't know them. But he saw his kids' bikes out there, and he stopped to talk to them. And he was cleaning his fingernails with the same identical pocket knife that was used for the murder. And he basically described the murder to them before it happened. And he talked about, they asked him, where, you know, where'd you get that from? And he said, oh, it was a giveaway. And he goes, you should see the one I have at home. It's, it's so sharp. It can cut your throat in a, in a second. And he goes, and it's so small. You can hide it. You can kill somebody, cut their head off, hide it, and nobody will ever know. And he made a comment about the rich kids. They deserve to, to be killed. Not that they were rich, but he, at the time, was renting a home from a farmer on, on the farmer's property. Uh, he was more of a redneck type of person. So everything he said, he described how this was going to happen before it happened with the same identical knife. And the interesting thing about this knife is the blade like slid up through the middle. It wasn't a switchblade. This is a little pocket, but that when you folded the knife, like the blade went back inside. So it wasn't your typical pocket knife. And that's what he had. So he now lives about four or five hours away from, from where my office is. So I went up to go interview him one day and I cold call. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I made the accusation that he was involved, that I believed he was involved with, with Zach's or with Gregory's murder. And he kind of chuckled. Short story is I was on his property for about 45, 50 minutes, almost an hour while he brought me into his garage and showed me I had one of my guys with me, yeah, showed smart. me the car that he was working on, brought me into his trailer that he lived, showed me deer heads on the wall. This is after I just accused him of possibly murdering somebody. And he continued to host me for 45, 50 minutes. It was very, very strange 
I still believe he's a person of interest. Uh, his son and, and the victim went to the same school, were in the same grade. They weren't in the same class, but they were in the same grade. And his son, that particular son was a little slow. He, you know, was one of those kids that would get picked on frequently. And, and Greg was one of those kids that would, I'm not saying he, he did pick on him because I don't know, but you know, he was just a cool, popular kid. So there, there could be, I mean, that's my theory and, and the potential motive, but that is the story. Uh, and, and it's still ongoing. I'm still working on some things and plan on continuing to follow up on, on a few more things that, uh, may bear some fruit. Any chance to, uh, pull DNA off the uh, murder weapon or out of the gloves? That is something that's being uh, looked into. So back then, uh, when the trial originally took place, they never tested inside the gloves and they didn't test Greg's fingernails and they were saved. So I, I don't know if that could be done. We're exploring those options if they can. And, you know, of course, the, the state's not going to pay for that. So mm -hmm. we are... We are looking into that. Okay. And who's your client now at this point? Really his his mom and dad. <laughs> you know, he's trying to move on with his life. And and they always were my client. Uh, I mean, they retained me. I went and talked to him, you know, at, at that point in time. That's, you know, way before the, the deal was made. You know, he just kind of, he gave up. He, you know, just kind of just felt that, look, this is this is his path now nothing that could be done. You know, he, he, he was, he was pessimistic instead of optimistic, but to this day, you know, the, the parents, they still lost the child and there's no closure with that because they feel that there's still somebody out there who did it and that their son, you know, was wrongfully convicted and, and, and really forced to make the statement that he did. Yeah, absolutely. When, you know, uh, when you have the cards stacked against you, Right. And you probably have no faith in the system and you've been probably brutalized in a uh, in a correctional life for 16 years. What do you expect to uh, to have that uh, that young man say, you know, at that point? I, I can't argue with his decision and I don't think too many people can. And in fact, uh, probably any attorney that would represent him would say, You've got to really think hard about this offer because you, you could possibly go, you know, to another appellate hearing or some other type of trial. And again, you could possibly lose. And then that door gets shut even tighter, right? So, yeah. So, no, it's, it's hard. It's hard. It's really hard. I know that one of my first murder cases that I worked on, the defendant was a young man, again, like almost a juvenile turning into an adult. and the, on the eve of trial, the uh, state dangled in front of him. Now, he was, he was allegedly a co-conspirator in a uh, robbery homicide. And uh, they dangled in front of him seven years. Now, he's 20, he, at the time, he's maybe 16, 16, 17 years old at the most. I can't even say 17, 16. And seven years, the math, 16 plus seven is 23. But no, he, he steadfastly said, I had nothing to do with this. I, I was not involved. I only learned about it after the fact. You know, myself and my co-defendant went down to the scene afterwards to see what was happening down there. But otherwise, we didn't you know, have anything to do with it. Well, fortunately, 
he he took the he, he did not take the plea agreement. He went to trial. I sat second chair on that trial with the attorney. Uh, my first time sitting second chair. And fortunately, it was a, it was a two week, uh, Donnybrook. I mean, you talk about an adversarial relationship. The prosecutor offered to, to fight hmm. the co defendant. Oh my God. During the trial. Oh my God. Yeah. Jeez. During the trial. Said, yeah. During the trial. Yeah. Fight. Physically fight. Yeah. So it, it, it was, um, but it was a, the judge was uh, was pretty even-handed both ways, and when it was all done, Jeff, I got to tell you, I, I stood there next to our defendant. The attorney was on the other side, and we we're waiting for the uh, foreman or the bailiff to pass the um, the finding from the uh, foreman to the judge on the murder charge. And I just stood there, and at that point, I had two children. I'd been married. I'd face down people with guns. Uh, I was never more nervous than I was at that moment when, before the judge opened up the piece of paper, because I was just thinking about what I could have done better, how I could have done it differently. What, what would happen to this kid if we didn't do our job right? You know what I'm saying? Total gravity was coming down on me and the attorney. It had been a brutal, well, two weeks of trial, but a brutal month of getting the last minute discovery. And you know what that's like. And then uh, working up, get ready for trial in the morning, going out at night, doing extra leads, running around like a cra crazy man. So finally, the verdict was read and it was not guilty on all charges. And yeah, and I was like, I was just so relieved, number one. The attorney was uh, a woman, a female attorney, and she was like, I don't want to say sobbing, but crying with relief too. And I remember the defendant putting his arm around her <laughs> and saying, it's okay. You know, I had, I, I believed you, I knew you were going to do this. And, uh, but you talk about, you know, as you said earlier about an, an adversarial relationship, right? Totally adversarial relationship. I, I don't want to go into the details of it, but I don't want to, uh, try to impugn what the jury thought, but, uh, certainly there was, uh, there was, uh, two confessions and a, um, eyewitness statement that was videotaped as well. And all three uh, later recanted saying they were pressured into it. And one of the experts was a, an expert about how, you know, the police can exert a tremendous amount of pressure, especially when there's no uh, family members or attorneys in the room to bring about what they want for a confession, as you know. So uh, that's what we were faced with. No forensics tying them to the homicide no other external witnesses putting them there. And uh, that's the case that we had. We had to chip away at it. Now, I'm only telling you this story because I, I realized that both myself and the attorney realized that he had seven on the table and rolled the dice and could have been looking at 40 or 50 years. Now, he believed in the attorney and he believed in my investigation. And my attorney had believed in my investigation. So he felt good enough to go forward with the trial to see what would happen. And luckily for him, it did. Now, I was just talking about this case the other day. Co-defendant with him did not have that kind of an attorney. That co-defendant was faced with the same evidence, you know, his own confession, the co our client's confession, 
and that third and that third person being the eyewitness. Again, no forensics, no other information. And uh, he opted to take a plea of 40 years, 40, 40, as opposed to being, and we had the same archaic, anachronistic law of uh, life without, you know, even for juveniles, we had that law too. So he was looking at possible life without the possibility of parole. Let me finish those words. You know, I don't want to just give you the abbreviation for that. So he did the math. And he was maybe 16 at the time, so at 56 is better than 80. So several years later, I got a call uh, from another attorney that wanted to take up the appellate case. And I worked with that attorney because I knew the underlying case. And I knew it inside and out. And I worked with that attorney on that. And we actually lost in the appellate trial. Even with better information, better all that all that stuff that we just talked about, right? Uh, the recantations. We also worked very hard to um, to supply an alternative suspect as well, and also t- took apart a little bit of the state's case with other witnesses that were there, and but never were really questioned about things that you know I went into more detail with. And so, to make a long, st- terrible story short, he was looking at you know another. 31 years or so of his life in prison. And, but our, uh, the motions hadn't finished yet. There were motions that the, the appellate attorney was very careful to preserve, worked really hard on, on making sure that those mush, that he could preserve the record and have those motions. And when it came time for those motions to be developed, it turned out that the state had not disclosed information to either the, tr- uh, the original trial attorney or the appellate attorney about the uh, activities of the detectives in that case. And as it turned out, if they had done so, neither uh, detective would have been able to testify. And the state realized that by the additional work that had been done through the motions and with some additional information that we were seeking uh, regarding exculpatory evidence as it related to alternative suspect, the state decided to uh, drop charges and uh, they let him out. So the co-defendants were finally, I mean, these two guys were finally able to breathe free air together after nine years of one of them being incarcerated. So it was a worthwhile venture on our part. I mean, I'd been around this case from 2005 up until uh, 2015. So I, like you've been on a case for seven years, I've been on this case for close to 10 years. And it was just a situation where you had one defendant who had an, uh, an attorney that was working hard, had an investigator and somebody that he could believe in, not just me, but the, the attorney. And, but the other one rightfully did not believe that his attorney would be able to overcome the state's case and would result in a uh, conviction for which he could be looking at that ridiculous, you know, life without the possibility of parole for a, for a juvenile, you know? So, so in any case, I just, uh, I mentioned that only uh, to kind of bring along what you were saying about why you can understand why Zach Whitman decided to take the plea because he had already been screwed with by the uh, criminal justice system. And there was no guarantee 
that justice would be served, right? Absolutely. So, right. So I only said that. I didn't expect I'd be, I'd be telling you about that case. <laughs> but, you know, when you get two guys that do homicide work or post-conviction relief work, you know, and we are, you're talking about things that are very uh, similar. <laughs> and uh, whether it's Pennsylvania or whether it's Connecticut, they're the kind of cases that they have some things in common, you know, and uh, that's why I brought mine up. I, I appreciate you sharing that. And w- what's great about podcasts and what you're doing and, you know, what, what we want to accomplish is people have to understand. And, and you mentioned that you were a cop previously. And mm-hmm. uh, I'll be honest, I mean, I've spent years, you know, packaging investigations and, and prosecuting people. And I was always had that mindset guilty until proven innocent. You know, I mean, that side of the law does no wrong. And, and I also want to just, just clarify something to the listeners. I am pro law enforcement. I support the men in blue. I support our military. Uh, I'm totally against defunding the police departments, all, all of that. It's just like any other profession. Sometimes there's some bad apples and when you have bigger police departments, like in, in the, in the big cities like Philadelphia, there's just, there's more of them because that percentage, you're always going to have that one, two, three percent. And then sometimes it starts to multiply because one does something and tells his buddy. And next thing you know, they're robbing the drug dealers and they're selling the bricks and whatnot. Right. So, you know, it does happen. It's unfortunate. And, and there's bad PIs out there. And I'm sure, you know, you and I probably know some of them. And there's there's bad doctors and there's bad nurses. And, you know, but... On a whole. And, 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 and the professions do little to ferret them out and actually do more to protect them. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is very well said. And, and I've said this, especially in Philadelphia. You know, Philadelphia, there is a list of over 60 police officers that are on what, what they call a do not call list. They are not allowed to be called to testify unless approved by the deputy DA because they're under indictment. They've already testified falsely in court. They've been found guilty of, you know, drink driving or uh, drunk driving something or, or there's charges pending and their their contract. And that's the that's the problem in Philadelphia. It's so hard to fire these guys. The drug task force, they get fired or, or they test hot for drugs and they quit and they still get a pension. Yeah. You or I test hot for, for drugs and we're sitting in jail and we get arrested. <laughs> I don't understand that logic one bit. Like, yeah. you know, uh, so. Well, we need to have a union. Right. So, I, and I'm not anti-union. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, the point is we could take that one step fur- further into the um, the shooting situations where you ask yourself, why is it that there's one laws, one set of laws for civilians and a different set of laws for people that you know, might wear, be wearing a uniform at the time. And I'm not talking UPS. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> yep. But, you know, and I, I agree with you. So I know we're kind of off the rails with this, but I tend to look at it as a situation where th- there's a, when, when that happens in a police department and it seems to spread more like a virus that, oh, this is how he got away with this. This is how I can get away with it. This is how I can solve my case. This is how I can you know do what I want to do. It spreads, but it's the absence of supervision, management, and leadership to hold accountable for the kind of investigations that 
you and I could never in a million years say that that that's a worthwhile investigation. That's one that is uh, that answers the question of who was responsible for that murder, or who was responsible for that crime. And we look at those investigations. We look at how poorly they're conducted and all the mistakes that are made. And you're asking yourself, where was the supervisor? Where was the you know management? Where was leadership in dealing with these type of situ- situations? Instead of best practices, we, we are falling down to the lowest common denominator. And that to me, suddenly now, and as we both know, 90% of cases or higher, the percentage is higher, 90% of, of cases are pled out. And suddenly, you know, the standard of uh, beyond a reasonable doubt now barely reaches, you know, probable cause, you know, which is a much lower standard. And uh, you ask yourself, why, why is that the case? Well, it's because nine out of 10 cases get pled. They never see the light of a courtroom. They never get totally examined. So suddenly it becomes easier to cut the corners and to, to do some of the, the knucklehead stuff that we see happening in the cases that we have to uh, work from a defense side or from a post-conviction uh, relief. Can I get an amen there? <laughs> Absolutely. Amen. And, and if, I can, if I can just add to that. Sure. Is, you know, anyone can become a victim to the judicial system because of false or coerced statements, ineffective uh, assistance of counsel, lackadaisical police work, prosecutorial misconduct, jailhouse snitches, deceitful witnesses, even dishonest expert witnesses. So the list goes on and on. But I, I think one of the things, you know, we, we touched on some corruption within law enforcement or, you know, maybe some of it could be their caseload is too big. And, you know, like you mentioned, they cut corners because there's so much. But one of the other problems is is the uh, prosecutorial misconduct and they are they're immune to it. Right. So if they withhold information and there's a Brady violation where somebody went to prison for 20 years because of a Brady violation, they don't even get a slap on their wrist. You know, but if you and I and the attorneys that we're working for, if we withhold information, now we're in trouble and we're at risk of losing our our PI licenses and whatnot. So that to me is a big problem, how the district attorney's office or the prosecutors, you know, they they have this whole immunity deal. God forbid, you know, they make a mistake. It's it's always a mistake, right? It's never on purpose. (laughs) And, And the world goes on. And it's interesting you say that. And just for some of our listeners, a Brady violation is when an egregious and pretty obvious withholding of what would be exculpatory evidence or evidence that would would help the defense in saying that there was reasonable doubt is withheld. And when that's withheld and it's later found later on, that that could be the, the reason for a new hearing. A lot of times uh, the state will fold their tent at that point in time and realize that uh, they w- they can't win the case the next time around, and that's why they they'll let people out of jail, or or, or make that proffer of time served in order to uh, avoid having to have a retrial ten, fifteen, twenty, thirty, forty years later. Oh, definitely, uh, prosecutorial misconduct is right on top of it, uh, top of my list too as well, and and somehow that they're insulated from what's going on, but yet they're not, and. Uh, you know, just a couple of days ago, I was in a, in a state's attorney's office going over their file on a 20, 20, now it's a 22-year-old case. And, 
you know, of course, it, it, it took them a month to, to remove work product <laughs> <laughs> from from that file. And you notice how I chuckled and you chuckled when I said that. Mm-hmm. But it took them a month to do that. And I would have loved to have known what was the removed work product and how would it have jeopardized their case 22 years later. But, you know, such as it is, I got to look at the uh, state's file a couple of days ago and I got what they gave me on a disc, which I'm going to look at over this weekend. But just the same, what, why not, like you said, from the, almost the onset of this interview, why not turn over what you have and have two heads work on this rather than our side is right, put on the blinders and we'll, we'll fight it to death. Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, how many, um, how many times have we seen around the country where post conviction relief has happened? But the state continues to fight and fight and fight and fight. And the, and the prisoner ends up dying in prison before his constitutional rights were, you know, were allowed. Do you know, do you know what I'm saying? I, I do. And, and, yeah. and, and for, the, for the listeners, it's really difficult to get a PCRA hearing to begin with. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, the, the process is that a petition is filed. And at that time... Th- the courts look at it and say, yes or no. You know, there's there's enough information to move forward to have this. A PCRA hearing is like a mini trial. And, and that mini trial, if it gets to that stage, and most of the time it doesn't even get there. But if it does, then you the judge hears more of the facts from both the prosecution and, and from the defense. And then they make it a decision whether to uh, grant a new trial or not. Yeah, we have the same habeas process up here in the up here in Connecticut, but with slight difference. We're hamstrung. I don't know if you're hamstrung. That's the word I want to use, hamstrung, down in the Commonwealth. But we're hamstrung that we can only bring new evidence, either to to formulate the petition or uh, to uh, introduce into the new um, habeas or into the new uh, trial. I don't know. Are you, are you um, hamstrung by that same? Yes. It's either needs to be new evidence that wasn't available at the time of the trial. And you only have one. It used to be 60 days. Now you have one year to produce that or to, to file once you, once you identified new information or there was, if you can prove that there was ineffectiveness of counsel at the time of the trial. If I can just add uh, the, on the Zach Whitman case, he filed, there was an original PCRA that was filed that was approved by the original trial judge. And get this, I, I've never, personally, I've never heard of this. The district attorney's office appealed that and won the appeal. No, I've never heard that. Me either, until this case. Wow. Wow. that That's crazy. Isn't it? <laughs> like, yeah. I, again, like, stop with the blinders and, and you know, do it again. If, if he's guilty then you're going to, you know, present the evidence and, and prove that he's guilty. But do you really want to send an innocent kid to prison or, or whoever it may be? Right, right. Interestingly, uh, recently I saw this, and I don't know if I, I want to quote it. It's from the New York Times or not, but if I'm wrong, I'll still quote the New York Times. <laughs> um, that out of 2,400 exonerations that have been recorded in, in, the, in the period that they were counting them, over half involved some some form of uh, police misconduct. And it was even more prevalent when it came to being a person of color. It was 78%. Hmm. 
Yep. And you ask yourself, well, why? Well, inner city, the attorneys might not be as, as they're overburdened or they're maybe not as, as, as well. Uh, the people can't afford private counsel as much. And then it goes on to a, a, a racial bias where it's, uh, well, of course he did it. <laughs> and then it's just, let's, let's make the facts up to, uh, fit the picture that we want to make up and let's just keep moving on. And when you, when you see that, you say that you say, wait a minute, th- there's something really wrong with that situation. Where in, and, and how many of those, um, police misconduct cases that were, were found through those appeals, did the law enforcement officers or the detectives lose their pensions or be sanctioned or get fined? Or, and then even more, what about the prosecutors, right? And I'm, I'm sure that the answer is what you just said. Nothing, zero, zilch, you know, and uh, I'm happy for the, for the creation of uh, some conviction integrity units around the United States. It's not as much as it should be yet. I'm hoping that more innocence projects can get more funding, better funding to continue to work on, uh, on these kind of matters. But obviously it's, it's not a situation where it's, it's not comforting to me to think that our criminal justice system is working the way it should work and, and work well enough that we can execute people. <laughs> right. So if I'm on my soapbox today, uh, Jeff, a little bit, you know, you lit my fire. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm glad it's, it's always, it's great to talk to like-minded individuals. So, yeah, absolutely. you know, and, and are passionate about it and, and have an understanding and, Mm. You know, you've you've been on both sides of the fence and, and you get yeah. it. And I, mm. I think what a lot of people don't know and realize, and and this is where a lot of criminal justice reform comes into play, but the United States has more people incarcerated than any other domesticated country in the world. And per capita. And, yep. And we're supposed to be, you know, the, the best country in the world. So why is that? And there's approximately two pe- two million people in jail or prison today in the United States, and there's no perfect formula that can be applied to how many are innocent, but it's believed to be anywhere from 2% to as much as 10%. So that means low end, there's at a minimum 40,000 people, 40,000 people who are in prison that shouldn't be, or as much as 200,000 innocent men and women who've been wrongfully convicted. I mean, and, and that, yep. (laughs) Yep. I was just going to say that that does not include those who've been wrongfully charged of a crime or those numbers are much, much higher because even before the plea agreement, they may be in jail and they could be in jail for as long as two years, five years before they go to trial. Right. Thanks to our bail system. Right. Which is a, <laughs> which is another, another story for another day. But, you know, here's a good point. And then just one little wrinkle on what you were saying. So you get in trouble. Right. And, but it, it certainly is not the, uh, the crime that you're being charged with. And, you get an attorney and the attorney, you know, is able to get you a, a probation deal. Okay. So you take the probation deal and, but even though you, you didn't do the crime that you're being, that you were being charged with, what happens a couple of years later, something stupid happens. You get 
charged with another crime. <laughs> you're, you're now violating your probation. And now you go into jail for your probation violation for the crime that you didn't commit because of some you know, minor or maybe not so minor misdemeanor offense that violates your probation. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So then you get, that's another uh, wrinkle on that pillow. So it's like, there's no, oh, come on. There's another baseball stadium filled with people. Yep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I know from, uh, sent me your CV that you'd also taken training with uh, Brandon Perrin's uh, uh, component method of uh, how to uncover, uh, uncovering reasonable doubt, the mm -hmm. component method. Am I right? Correct. Yes, sir. Yeah. So, so did I. And uh, for anybody that is ever interested in wanting to take a professional approach to criminal defense investigation, I highly recommend uh, Brandon's course and his book, The uh, Component method uncovering reasonable doubt. The blue book uh, sits in my uh, briefcase on the street with me when I go out every time I'm working a criminal defense case. So uh, I just wanted to mention that as a as something for our listeners that if they're interested in that. Also, we have some great organizations that uh, put on training. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw out the names of uh, the National Association of Public Defenders (NAPD) uh, and. DIA, National Defense Investigators Association. I'm also going to put out uh, this uh, for the lawyers, but they, you know, they allow private investigators to, you know, to buy materials. National Association of Criminal Defense, National Association of Criminal Defense Invest Lawyers, lawyers yep. NACDL. Any other, um, any other things that you recommend, Jeff, for people that are might be interested in a, in a working criminal defense? Uh, I, I think the same that you mentioned, as well as the a lot of states have the same. The, the Pennsylvania, for example, the Pennsylvania Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. Same, you know, it's it's they follow kind of in the national associations guidelines are very similar, but they're just the state associations, and they're pretty good. I, I know I wrote an article in, in the Pennsylvania one. In fact, I I quoted um, Brandon's book and and the component method, and, and I would. And just just second what you said, I, I totally agree, and I'd recommend uh, his class and the book as well. But I, I think the book for those who, even if you don't want to do criminal defense investigations, really any kind of investigations, if you follow that component method, it's it's really a sure thing. Um, you know, whether it's it's a, a theft investigation or an an accident investigation. You know, you still want to kind of break it down in those same steps, and it, it gives you a, a foundation. So it's really a, a great training tool for everyone. Absolutely, I agree. So, Jeff, we kind of went in, in one direction to start, but then went in another direction to end. But I'm I'm just as satisfied that we were able to talk about two heartfelt cases for you, two heartfelt cases for me. You know, criminal defense investigation work. I can't help but think that. You have to have your passion and your energy and your brains all together at the same time. And it's I think it's like a three-legged three stool that you can't just rely on your brains. You've got to have some passion for it and some, you know, inspiration to do it. Because otherwise, there's a lot at stake. Like I said about me looking up at that jury foreman, pass that uh, note to the judge through the bailiff. And I'm, I'm thinking my, Oh my God, what's going to happen here. If you don't have that kind of feeling, you know, going into these cases, are you really doing as much as you can for the client? If, if you're not engaged, 
You know, I mean, it's just not, I think you have to add on top of the skill sets, you have to have that other things to go. Hey, listen, I don't, I don't know any private investigators that get rich off of doing criminal defense work. I really don't. And if, and if you know somebody and tell me, I'll have them on the show. But I do know that there's a payment for doing that type of work that is much, much greater than any money you could put in my pocket. It, it is. And, and one of the best feelings, you know, when you walk somebody out who was found not guilty, you know, like you talked about in, in, in the trial, whether it's the trial stage or you you free them and you pick them up from prison. And even in, in Zach Whitman's case, and I drove the dad to to pick up Zach and drove him home. It's just such a rewarding feeling. And I, I have, um, those are the things that that's why we do it, you know, just, just to, to kind of right the wrongs. And I, I know after one of my cases where all the, all the murder charges were dropped against my client and it, we were done and we walked out and the district attorney says, Jeff, I know, and this is this is the truth. This is exactly what how this went down. This was a high profile case in Philadelphia on a murder case because it involved a high profile. Uh, I, you know what I'm going to say? Nicki Minaj's tour manager, and the district attorney said to me, "Jeff, I know you talked to more people than we did. Can I get a copy of all your notes?" Now, isn't that sad? How does a private investigator who's being paid by the family? able to do more than not just the, the homicide detectives in Philadelphia, but they also got the uh, investigators for the prosecutor's office. Right. And they couldn't get out and talk to these people like I did. That's yeah. the problem. <laughs> and you don't carry a badge. Right. You can't, you can't threaten anybody. Nope. You can't get anybody's face. You just got to rely on establishing rapport. Uh, you have to rely on uh, knowing how to, phrase your questions. You have to know how to get your foot in the door like a salesman. And you have to know how to, to read people and how to, uh, to do things in a way that doesn't threaten them in any fashion. And uh, yeah, it's truly an art form on the criminal defense side of it. I mean, I always talk about how we don't have it easier. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, and certainly, um, you know, I, I wish I had a nickel for every time a reluctant witness said to me, uh, do I have to go to court? <laughs> yeah. 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 Right. So, uh, no, Jeff, thank you so much for coming on. I, I do appreciate your time. How can people reach you if they want to talk to you more? They can reach me. Uh, they can call me. They can email, visit my website. The website is www.elpspda, as in executive legal professional services, private detective agency.com. My phone number, um, 610-696-7799. And to make it easy for you, uh, for the listeners, if you want to call my toll-free number, it's 877-C-THAT, as in S-E-E-T-H-A-T. Okay. That's great, Jeff. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for listening. Make sure to check out our website, thepicoach.com, for more episodes, PI coaching services, books, and more. If you were either informed, inspired, or entertained by this conversation today, don't be bashful. Share this link with your friends. Better still, go to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. It's the best way to grow the circle around our campfire. If you have any questions, please reach out through our website, thepicoach.com. Thanks so much, and have a great day.